And good morning, everybody. So my family watched a movie just yesterday, and it was going to be a slow build toward the action scenes toward the end of the movie. So they started the movie with a little bit of an action scene right at the beginning because they wanted to whet our appetite and to promise something coming in the future that we knew we would experience. And then they started doing the exposition and we started to get to know the characters and they had to build all those characters backgrounds so that what we had seen at the beginning made sense. That's kind of what I'm doing right now for this message, in fact. I'm gonna whet your appetite by saying that way back in that previous year, the one that we don't like to speak its name, okay, I'll say it, 2020. Way back then in November 22nd, I preached on chapter 14 of Paul's letter because that was before we went into the Advent season. And I took you through a passage where there was about 95% of the information that Paul gave that said tongues is not very effective for adequately and carefully and clearly proclaiming the gospel message. And that's what we need to do. We need to proclaim very clearly the gospel message. There was 5%, two little verses stuck in the middle of that, that looked like he had changed his mind or was reversing his logic somehow. And yet there are some people who would grab a hold of that 5% and develop their whole theology around two verses that don't have anything to do with the context of the whole passage. You might remember that if you heard that. So what is becumbent upon us is that if we see a passage like that, we need to understand that Paul's doing something on purpose. And it was one of his methods. It's something that he was pretty good at. He would insert something that sounded completely different. Maybe he wanted to wake up his listeners. And he would often give a quote or point back in history to something, which he did in chapter 14. And when we went back and followed the quote to what it actually meant, it doesn't sound like, oh, okay, well, tongues is a, a good sign then. He said, yeah, it's a sign, <laughs> but it's not a good sign. It was a bad sign. It was a sign of God's judgment and his condemnation of people who would forget to listen to him for their wisdom because they would seek wisdom elsewhere. So he was saying, basically, the quote he was talking about meant, oh, yeah, you're going to hear different tongues, different languages, but the reason you're going to hear them is because I'm going to allow other countries to come and take you away, and you're going to be in exile, and you're going to have to hear these other languages spoken around you. So that was the context for Paul's words there. And he does things because he likes to flip things on its head to give an opposite view or a negative or a converse argument. That was just one of Paul's methodologies. So I whet your appetite because he's not going to disappoint with today's message either. Paul is going to give us one of those things that starts to sound like, oh, wait a minute, Paul. Are you going in circles here? That doesn't sound very logical to me. Well, he's been logical up to this point. So if he does that, based on his methodology, since we know he does that, instead of grabbing that one passage, which is maybe 5% of all the rest of the chapter, and building our uh, theology around that, we need to ask some good questions and say, what exactly are you talking about, Paul? Because I think you're about to unpack something that's pretty exciting for us. So I've just done that. I've given you the action scene ahead of time. Are you excited? Oh, I thought so. Good for you. So we're going to dive in today to the resurrection of the dead, because Paul has just come from talking about the most important message, which has to do with death, 
burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was our prototype. That was the resurrection unique in history. Yes, there were some other resurrections of human beings in the New Testament. Uh, the guy who fell out the window because Paul preached too long, for example. I probably won't preach that long today. Um, I hope not. Uh, anyway, that guy rose to life again. There was Lazarus, of course. There was little Talitha Kum, uh, the New Testament example of a little girl. And uh, so we see some other kinds of resurrections, but they were not unique like Christ's resurrection because those people still had to die again. When Lazarus was called forth from the tomb, he lived for a few more years, but he still had to die physically before he would go into eternity. But Jesus, however, was very unique in history because when he rose, that was it. He was alive forever. And then, of course, he ascended to be with his father. So Jesus sets the tone, sets the stage, sets the definition, sets the standards for everything related to our resurrections to come as believers. And so Paul wants to make sure that he's clarifying some things, particularly because he had some unusual audiences to which he was writing back in Corinth at the time. This is our uh, overview for what we're going to look at today. Paul fairly neatly divides some of these things into different topics for us today, so it made it easy for us to outline. First of all, we're going to see what if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? That's hypothetical. And then here's what happens because Jesus has been raised, so don't get too excited when you see that first one and you say, what if Jesus had not been raised? Oh, no. Is, is Paul going to suggest that maybe he wasn't? No, it's okay. Just calm down. Here's what happens because Jesus has been raised. He's arguing from a hypothetical situation. Then he says, these are some of the facts that we know for sure because he has been raised. And then thirdly, he's going to correct some theology that he was writing to in Corinth at that day, which unfortunately, some of which has already been carried way up into today's time. And so we can say, yeah, we need to correct our theology too if we have bought into some things that were way off on the wrong foot back in the first century AD. Are you ready to go? Mm -hmm. If so, say from where you are, I'm ready to go. Okay, thank you. Good for you. Paul came, I know this is coming as a real shock to you. He was born before Frank Capra was born. Were you aware of that? It's true. Uh, every time I read this particular passage, I can't help but go all the way back to It's a Wonderful Life. And probably because it's weighing so close on my mind this time is because we watched it just about three or four weeks ago. And so I'm reading this hypothetical situation that's so similar. And I can't help but wonder, hmm, I wonder where Frank Capra got his idea for the big picture of his movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe, maybe not. Might have come from 1 Corinthians. Who knows? We'll see. But it's interesting to me to think about that movie and to understand that there was this good guy, an upright fellow who put others before himself. He kept turning down his own opportunities so that he could keep the savings and loan going. And you've probably seen the movie. You're probably aware of it. Those two towns, the one that was the hypothetical town, the one that we got to see because the angel was able to tell him, okay, you're going to get your wish. I'm going to show you what life would be like if you had never been born. That's what's taking us into this passage here. And we got to see it became Pottersville. It was awful. I wouldn't want to live in Pottersville, would you? Of course not. And then there was that wonderful Bedford Falls. And that was the town that was influenced so positively by this wonderful character, George Bailey. And because of his selfless 
um, character and the way he poured himself into everybody else's lives in that town, it became kind of an idealized little town where everybody cared for each other. Well, that's what takes us into this hypothetical situation that Paul is going to talk about. So let me read to you this first section about a hypothetical what if from verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses for God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died physically in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, let's look at that. He says, for us, some believed back then in Corinth, which is why he's writing some of this stuff. There were some who believed there was no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. You ready for a history lesson? All right. I know you're excited about history, as I am. <laughs> Let's look at it. There are three basic schools of thought back then that Paul was writing to. The first, the materialistic school, and this is a really quick, broad overview, contains two strange groups that you would never expect to be lumped into the same category because they're so different. The Epicureans and the Sadducees. The Epicureans would be people that we might describe today as the real hedonists. They believed that the highest purpose in life was pleasure. Let's just do all we can to find the greatest pleasure, including the pleasure of the senses, sensual pleasure. And so they would just do everything they could to become the party people. The party of the Epicureans was, woohoo, let's party, party, party. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So let's grab for all the gusto we can get and whatever other advertisements you might want to throw in there just for good measure. But then there are the Sadducees. Strange that they would be lumped into the materialistic school as well because we would think of them as being Jewish, which they were, being very religious, which they were, being even legalistic, which they were, and yet, they fell into the same thing, the same category of people who did not believe in a resurrection later. Odd pairing, isn't it? They found strange bedfellows together based on the fact that they both believed this one doctrine alike, even though they looked so different from other things. The Sadducees were the powerful people. These are the people that chief priests and many of the members of the San Sanhedrin came from. They were sort of the societal elite among the Jews. And they were extremely legalistic. Every jot and tittle had to be looked after in terms of the word. They didn't look at any of the moderates like the Pharisees. They thought the Pharisees were really liberal in the way that they could interpret different things because they would have different rabbinical teachings that they would start to buy into and think that were just as important as scripture. Whereas the Sadducees would say, no, 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 it's scripture and scripture alone. We have to stick very closely to this. And they were very literal in their interpretation of scripture. So widely different outwardly in terms of how they lived out their lives, but both believed the same thing. There was no resurrection. 
And one might ask yourself, how could the Sadducees, being so religious, believe that there would be no resurrection? Well, that's my question, too. And I think that was Paul's question. And he had been a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, descendant from Pharisees, and been to the schools of Hillel and Gamaliel. And so he knew all about all the Pharisaic teachings. And so he was trying to help correct some thoughts, including those of the Sadducees, many of whom I would hope could listen or read his teachings and eventually come to the truth and say, ah, I see what Paul's talking about now, based on eyewitness reports and the fact that Jesus Christ is our prototype. Second group of people. Are you still with me? Okay, good for you. History lesson number two here, the second school, the Stoics. They had kind of a pantheistic, generalized the universe is all one big mass thing, and we're all part of that universe. And so at the time of our physical death, we're all sort of just, we're all going out into this great vast unknown, and we're absorbed into it, but we have no individual personality or soul after that. Kind of the nirvana almost, uh, or sort of a Buddhist sort of uh, 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 worldview. The history lesson takes us to number three, the third school, the disciples of Plato. Yes, they would say there is an ongoing existence of personality and soul after this life, but they would say no to a resurrected physical body, which is what Paul is going to be teaching because of Jesus Christ as being the prototype. Why is that? Because in this particular school of thought, the physical matter became a barrier to reaching the great deity or the great good. And that would mean that if you've still got your body and you're still tempted by things that would become a barrier to really understanding the deity, then you couldn't fully recognize what that deity was all about. You couldn't be completely immersed into that if you're still being held back by this physical body. So they thought that it was some sort of a separation of the soul and the body. It was a real dichotomy at the end of life. And that's how you could finally be set free from all these things that would hold us back. So yes to an existence beyond this life, but no to a physical body. Those are the three schools of thought. Isn't it crazy that that many differences could exist all in one group of people in one locale? And that's why Paul had to write so extensively about the resurrection because he wanted to correct some of these things. So he's addressing all three schools. This is in context, immediate context with what he just talked about earlier, the most important message. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, because that is the heart of the gospel. If there was no resurrection of the dead, Paul starts to say, okay, let's look at this and unpack it, and let's do sort of a it's a wonderful life approach. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus has not been raised, just like George Bailey didn't even exist in Bedford Falls to influence all those other people. Well, if Jesus has not been raised, there's a whole series of domino effects like we would see in Bedford Falls as well. Then if Jesus has not been raised, then the apostles preaching was useless. Why would the apostles be traveling all over the place preaching what they've been preaching if they didn't believe that it was true? Well, they shouldn't because their preaching would be absolutely useless. It would be preaching about something that was completely man-made and just mythology. And if that was true, that Jesus had not been raised, the apostles would found to be even worse than just deluded. They would be false witnesses. They'd be liars. They would be guilty of perjury because they were staking their life and their reputation and God's reputation, quite frankly, on Jesus' resurrection, because they were trying to point people to God, knowing that Jesus was the incarnate God, 
placed here for our benefit. So he was following the logic all the way through to say, if all this was true, then even what I'm saying to you, what I have been preaching to you, I'd be a liar. I'd be a perjurer. Well, if God hadn't raised Jesus, then nobody else can be raised either. And conversely, if nobody is raised, then Christ wasn't raised. This is the part I was whetting your appetite with earlier. We read that and we might go, oh, Paul, come on. Your circular reasoning. You're like trying to give the definition of the word by using the word, you know, which you're not supposed to do. You're trying to do something that doesn't make any sense logically. Well, there's method to his madness, just like it was back in chapter 14 when he inserted those two things that were flipping the logic on its head so that we would be forced to listen to something and look at a quote from the Old Testament. This time, Paul is doing something that would, in the Latin, be considered a reductio ad absurdum. Sounds like a great phrase, isn't it? It means that he's pointing out the absurdity of those who did believe certain things because he was actually kind of putting on his snarky face. <laughs> and if you understand this literary device, which he uses in other places, I've talked to you about how he can be pretty facetious at times. This is one of those facetious times for Paul. That's exactly what some of his critics were saying. They were using one thing to try to identify the other and they were really just trying to de define the word by using the word and it doesn't work for Paul, so he was pointing that out by doing this. So you could imagine with his tongue planted firmly in his cheek, God saying, well, if God hadn't raised Jesus, then nobody else can be raised. And conversely, if nobody's raised and Christ wasn't raised, he's basically saying, we need to be more logical in looking at this, folks. And you're not pointing out to yourselves the fact that you're not logical. That was Paul's approach here. If there was no resurrection of the dead, if Christ wasn't raised, then he says to those people who are believers, who claim to be believers in Christ, your faith is futile because you are still in your sins. He had previously in some of his other writings and in the earlier parts of 1 Corinthians had actually pointed to the believers to say, you are part of the proof that God changes people because you're changed. You believe that you're no longer dead in your sins, and I've seen you come to life. I've seen you become a new creation in Christ. I've seen you start to change your character. And so that's evidence in itself that Christ is real because you embraced him and you placed your faith in him and he gave you his Holy Spirit. And so he's starting to implant those fruit of the spirit. And so now I can tell that Christ is real. And he's saying, but if all this wasn't happening, if this was Pottersville instead of Bedford Falls, hypothetically, then if Christ wasn't raised, your faith is futile. You're believing in a myth. And so it's just a placebo that's worth nothing. It's got no substance. And that means that the believers who have already died and gone before us are lost. There's nothing in store for them in the future either, at least no good thing. If you do believe in a heaven and a hell, then they're in hell. If you do believe in a just an afterlife that's a, you're absorbed into the great unknown or into the great nirvana or into the great whatever, like uh, the schools of thought of those who follow Plato, then they've really got nothing to look forward to, like what we described to you in the message in verses 1 through 11 about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's basically painting a really bleak picture. It's real Pottersville for them. And then he says, if this life is all we've got, if all we have is to look forward to what we can gain here, which is exactly what the, the uh, Epicureans believed, eat, drink, and be merry, then, man, we're the, we're the most pitiful people on earth. We should be pitied more than anybody else because we're deluding ourselves. 
we are not based in reality. And we're just kind of putting on our rose colored Christian glasses and saying, oh, God brings about good to all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's not true. And so we're living in our anxiety and our fear, and we're going to die miserable. He says, we should be pitied. Pat Nixon is the example here. I put that for you because I visited a psych ward way back when I was in uh, high school. So this is like over four decades ago. And I went with uh, a visiting companion who was older than I am. I was young enough that I needed somebody over 21 so that we could go in. This lady was a dear friend of ours and belonged to our church. And she had a psychotic break. And she was placed in the psych ward for about a week. And fortunately, I'm happy to report that she became better very quickly and was very much herself again, was released from the hospital. It was just the most bizarre thing. I don't know what happened neurologically that would cause this kind of a shift that way. I don't know if she changed her medications or what, but she firmly believed, I mean firmly, that she was Pat Nixon. And she was just wearing a nightgown, regular old nightgown, but she was talking to us about the designer who had designed her dress this wonderful gown, and she presented herself. It was so bizarre because she was so unlike that. She was so humble and uh, just discreet and petite and kind and quiet, and yet there was this Pat Nixon persona coming out that it, it was so strange that as we were seeing, as we were watching her become Pat Nixon, if you could hear her voice and not see her, you might think that you were listening to Pat Nixon. I mean, it was just Pat Nixon? Pat Nixon was uh, President Nixon's wife. Thank you. <laughs> I know I'm dating myself. This is going way back there. But she thought she was the president's wife. And she was taking us into this little uh, hospital room. that was like most hospital rooms, except it was even more stark than most hospital rooms because it was a psych ward. They didn't want anything in the room that somebody could use to harm themselves. And she was talking about the art that was on the walls. And this one has historic significance. She really was living as the president's wife. Just bizarre. So here's the thing. I felt pity for her because I thought, oh, if you only knew. I mean, you're really deluded here because you think that you are this person and you're not. Why do we know that? Because we were eyewitnesses to her before she was living this way. We had seen Pat Nixon on TV. We knew what Pat Nixon looked like. This was not Pat Nixon. Paul is making this kind of comparison by saying, look, all these believers that have started to change the course of history, and you've seen them, they're putting their lives on the line. I mean, they, many were already becoming martyrs for their faith. He's saying, but if they're placing their faith in something that has no substance, and if they're just deluded by this great lie, then they of all people should be the most pitied. But, and this is where Clarence the angel comes in and he answers George Bailey's prayer when George says, but I want to live. Dear God, let me live. And the minute he says, God, the snow starts to fall again. His lip starts bleeding. He finds Juju's petals. Everything's going to be okay because he's back in Bedford Falls. It's not Pottersville anymore. The guy, Ernie or Bert, can't remember which one it is, the cops, which by the way, was the inspiration for the Ernie and Bert on Sesame Street. That's for free. He recognizes him and says, George, he says, you know me? He goes, yeah, everything's going to be okay. Why is that? Because everything is as it should be, and it's based on reality. Here's what happens. Because Jesus has been raised again. Let me read that passage now, verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits, that's an important word, we're going to look at that, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, aka died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam, in Adam, all die, so that's the first Adam, so in Christ, all will be made alive. It's the second Adam. Paul refers to that later, I think, even in this chapter, down around verse 45 or so. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And that's referring to evil dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why it was important that he's talking about the real death, burial, and resurrection in the first 11 verses here, because that's the message of the gospel. Christ has destroyed the last enemy, which is death, and that was the enemy that was a part of the curse because of sin. Verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, because God is above everything, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. It's a wonderful time that we're looking forward to because there is a resurrection. Some pretty deep and important theology going on here with Paul. Christ is the first fruits. This is important because of those Jewish believers, including the Sadducees, they would have understood about the Old Testament practice of the first fruits offerings. They would have the wave offerings, the grain offerings. There would be something right around the very first harvests in spring of the barley and the wheat. This was the very first, and they would take the very best and give it to God as an offering. What was that for? For one thing, it recognized that God was the giver of all good gifts. And so it was to be able to say, thank you, God, for providing everything we need for su sustaining us and providing for our well-being, including everything we need for nutrition. You've given us life through this, and we give you life back. There was a promise of more to come as well. The reason they did it at, at the beginning was not because they were going to give God the leftovers. They were going to give God the first at the beginning of the harvest because they knew that there was a promise of much more to follow because they had just gotten started, and there's going to be a great harvest and much more fruitfulness as time went on. And there was a connection to the Passover because there was this whole season that they would celebrate and Paul knew that those Jewish believers back then, or the Jewish people who were looking for truth, hoping to become believers in Christ, moving away from their legalistic Jewish adherence to the law, they were connecting this thing to the Passover. Because he would understand that everything Christ did was to fulfill that Passover. It's because those of us who are under the blood are passed over. And he's covered us with his blood. So there was all that wonderful sim symbolism that Paul is using here. That's one of the reasons why he used first fruits there. And it's a reason for hope for all believers. If Christ, in fact, was the first fruits, if he was the first offering, then, oh, my goodness, there is so much more to come. It's going to get so much better. And then he's starting to connect the first Adam and second Adam here. This is the first time Paul introduces it, and he's going to expound on it a little bit later, as I said. There's death through Adam because sin entered the world through the very first human beings, and then all of us have sinned since then, 
because we were tainted with sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as he says in Romans. But there's life through Christ. So he's making a comparison and a contrast between Adam, the man, and Christ, also a man, but far more than just a man. He was God incarnate, and he was the only one who was the unblemished lamb capable of providing for us the kind of death, burial, and resurrection that it required to pay for sin and to finally get rid of that final enemy, which was death. He says in verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Contrast. In Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And it's a fulfillment of bookends all the way from the very beginning of what happened in history, starting with creation, until finally we can become a new creation in Christ because of Jesus and what he did for us. It's a beautiful poetry. And when Paul writes this way and you start to connect the dots that way, you just see it expanding in such breadth and depth that you think, this guy's brilliant. Well, he's also inspired. That helps. But also because there is a resurrection, because there's this Bedford Falls hope instead of just the Pottersville, there are the chronology of events that Paul wants them to know about ahead of time too. Christ was first, and then when he returns, because as he would say when he was giving us instructions for the Lord's Supper, you're going to take this Lord's Supper each time you do it in remembrance of him until he comes again. He's showing us that Christ is going to come back again. There was the first coming, the incarnation, but there's going to be this wonderful second advent. We're looking forward to that. We're in the second advent now. We're still looking forward to the time when he comes back again. And those who belong to him, wow, that's when they get to see him and they get to experience all the good that he has for them. And then the end will come. So Paul is giving us a little bit of a, a clue as to the, the steps that will happen in history, showing that there's still more to come and it's going to be so much better. So if Christ is just the first fruits, oh my goodness, what a great harvest we have to look forward to. And there's less anxiety when we know the outcome in advance. I want to share this experience from Joseph Stowell. Uh, Joe Stowell, Dr. Stowell, is now the current president of Cornerstone University. We've had a few of our Living Water college students actually attend Cornerstone. So I'm sure you know who Joseph Stoll is. He's also a brilliant writer. He's written quite a bit for Christianity Today. He was on the board of directors for the Billy Graham Association, just a really brilliant guy. But he was talking about that time in 1980 when America needed hope. He said, the economy back then was in the ditch. The Cold War was in its fury. Russia seemed bigger and more powerful than anybody could imagine, and they seemed more powerful than America. And we were entertaining the Olympics at Lake Placid in New York. In 1980, that was when we needed hope, and we weren't sure where we were going to be able to find it. He says, I remember coming home from church one Sunday, and America was playing Russia in hockey in the Olympics. It was the end of the first period, he says, and I couldn't believe it. We, Americans, were beating Russia. <laughs> he says, all of a sudden, I felt my stomach tighten. My knuckles were white. I had this anxiety about the game because all through the second period, we were still ahead. But going into the third period, I just knew what was probably going to happen. The Russians was, were going to score five goals toward the end of the game. They were going to beat us, and we would be embarrassed again. But guess what happened? Well, you know what happened. It's the miracle on ice. America won. Ah, it was incredible. He said it was such a big deal, in fact, 
that the uh, television station played the whole game again for us because they wanted us to revel in that. He said, that time, my wife and I kicked our feet up. And we watched the whole game, but I wasn't nervous this time. How come? Because we knew the outcome. We knew the ending ahead of time. That's what happens when we know the ending. And that's why it was important for Paul to give us the ending in advance to show us what we still had to look forward to. I've told you before that I have a very oversimplistic four-word description of the book of Revelation. Be ready. God wins. Very simplistic, but I still think it's true. We can live with less anxiety about life because we whose life is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that resurrection, which is based on eyewitness events. We know what the ending is going to be. It's been revealed to people like the apostles, like the apostle Paul. We can look forward to Jesus' return. We can look forward to the time when God is going to come in and usher in true justice once and for all time. And for all of us who are in Christ, it's going to be amazing because there's so much fruitfulness ahead. And then the third part of this whole outline that Paul's giving us in just these uh, verses that we're looking at today, Paul really gets down to brass tacks. And there's a couple of interesting things about that. I started looking up the term brass tacks. There are a couple of possibilities of where that term came from. It, everybody that I looked at in the etymology of that phrase tends to think that it came from America. Some tend to think it was probably from the upholstery industry, because when you get down to brass tacks, you're getting down to the, the root, something that holds things together, the basics. It's like, get down to what's really holding this whole thing together. Get to your point, in other words, which I've taken a long time to do. <laughs> but Paul's getting down to brass tacks. Another thing, though, that I found very interesting were they would use brass tacks, not only decoratively, but also to hold things together in coffins. So say, well, we're going to put the final nail in the coffin. It was usually a brass tack. And Paul is saying, okay, I'm going to put a final nail in the coffin to my argument for you. And yet there's also something to, to the fact that he's getting real with them about death, burial, and resurrection. And this is my own analogy. It, it doesn't come from Paul. This brass tack analogy is just something that came to my mind in how we can get into this third section. But he is getting down to brass tacks by saying, we're all going to die. That's a part of life is death because death came through the first man, Adam. But fortunately for us, now that we know what the second Adam is like, Jesus Christ, we can look forward to life. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can look forward to life everlasting. So he's going to correct some theology now. This is the real brass tacks teaching from Paul from verses 29 through 34. And let me read that for you right now. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Let's unpack this last section together. Again, as I mentioned from chapter 14, 5% 
people will grab the 5% that has nothing to do with 95% of the true context, and they'll build their theology around something that's completely the opposite of what Paul intended. Same thing can happen also in this passage. Some people will read, now, uh, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And they'll say, oh, that means we should baptize for the dead, right? <laughs> let, me, uh, let me be clear with this. No. We're not supposed to baptize for the dead. Again, he's using this ad absurdum argument by saying, there's some of you, which makes no sense at all, because if you're falling into one of the camps that says there is no resurrection of the dead, and yet if you want this smorgasbord of ideas, if you're trying to bring in as many eclectic ideas in worship as you can, so that you say, well, some of the pagans are doing this, so I think I'll do that too. I'll just go ahead and baptize for the dead too. He said, it makes no sense. What you're doing makes absolutely no sense. So he was trying to correct their theology back then, which is not an endorsement of baptism for the dead. If anything, it's saying it's a silly idea, <laughs> and it's something that we shouldn't take either into our observances, because there's the one time for us while we're still alive, and as long as we have a breath in our lungs, we can call out to God, call out for his salvation, we can be saved, and we know that our salvation is secure only because of what Christ has done for us, not because of our good works. But once a person has died, that's it. And Paul makes that clear, not only here, but in several of his other letters as well. So no, he's not endorsing baptism for the dead. I want you to repeat after me. No, no. there is no, there is no baptism, for the dead. baptism for the dead. Okay, thank you very much. It's always nice to have antiphonal interaction <laughs> with this large crowd that we've got today. <laughs> If Christ has not been raised, why would we put ourselves in peril so often, he says. And he gives one example, but in a couple of other examples later in some of the other places like the book of Acts, we can see all the peril that Paul was involved in. So much peril. This guy was in so much danger so much of the time. I mean, he was like the Jason born of apostles. And he would go from one dangerous situation into the next. Why would he keep doing that if he didn't believe that what he was preaching was true? Because he did believe it. Why would he believe it? Because he had seen it. It was eyewitness evidence. I keep saying this to you, and I want to make sure that it's clear. We have an eyewitness evident event, and that's why Paul could get so excited and ramped up, as I just did. I'm going to calm myself down now for just a minute. That's why Paul would put himself in peril, because they believed it was true. If the dead aren't raised, we might as well party with the Epicureans. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. If pleasure's all we've got, well, let's just grab for all the gusto we can get. Does he endorse it by saying that? Well, absolutely not. Clearly not. I mean, you can even see because of the arguments that he's giving that there's so much more than just physical, temporal pleasure. It's not about just immediate gratification for the believer. We have something so much better to look forward to because we are in Christ. And then he says, bad company corrupts good character. Don't be misled by bad company. I really appreciated, uh, Steve, your sharing this morning in our growth encounter time about shepherds and sheep and what influence us and what are the things that can distract us and irritate us. And the fact that media it feeds so much of the bad ideas to us today. We have to be very cautious about what we're allowing into our brains because we'll be so influenced by the media. 
And a majority of the media we can see today is not going to be edifying and it's not going to be pointing us to the truth that Paul is pointing us to right now. So that means that we have to really guard our minds and our hearts and our lips and everything that we would do needs to focus on what we would implant into our brains that would help us not become influenced by bad company, corrupting good character. And apparently that was happening in Corinth or he wouldn't have written it. He's saying, don't hang out with these people who don't believe in a resurrection <laughs> and, and listen to what they're having to say. Stop it. Just stop it. He says, come to your senses. He's seeing that almost as if it's a temporary insanity for them to be so misled, even after they had originally said, yes, I believe this. And then for them to start getting pulled away from what they had built their foundation of truth on. He says, stop that. Come back to your sentence, your senses. And I need to come back to my sentences and read what's on the page. There were some back then who were, and as he described it, ignorant of the truth. That means that they, they didn't have enough truth yet to know how to develop good wisdom. And he says, don't go to those people to develop your wisdom. Don't get your wisdom from ignorant people. Go to those people who have seen the truth, have witnessed the truth, and are witnessing to the truth, like the apostles' teaching. And then there's one man who got a grip on the truth, and I ran across this, and he's good one to sum up what we have going on here. Because I was just uh, astounded by his story. And when I found out he was from Northern Ireland, and I had gotten to know David Dara from Northern Ireland, who was the associate pastor in Dalkeith when Joy and I were there, and then Callie joined us a um, year and a half ago in the summer in Scotland. Um, I realized that this guy has a great story and I need to share it. So Alistair McGrath is his name. He's from Northern Ireland, Belfast, in fact. He's a theologian now, a minister, a historian, and a scientist. He's a pretty brilliant guy. And before he came to faith in Christ, he was a devout, and I mean devout, atheist. He was one of these kind of uh, evangelical atheists. He was actually trying to uh, preach atheism to other people and espouse all the, the positive things about being an atheist. So McGrath tells his own story about the first time he began to awaken to the hope of the life that he found and the hope that he found in the resurrection. I'm reading straight from him now. This is a quote from Alistair McGrath. As a young man, I was a grumpy and frankly rather arrogant atheist. I was totally convinced that there was no God and that anyone who thought there was needed to be locked up for his or her own good. I was majoring in the sciences at high school and had won a scholarship to study chemistry at Oxford beginning in October 1971. I had every reason to believe that studying the sciences further would confirm my rampant godlessness. While waiting to go up to Oxford, I decided to work my way through a pile of improving books. Needless to say, none of them were religious. Eventually, I came to a classic work of philosophy, Plato's Republic. We talked about the disciples of Plato here, which is another reason this caught my eye. I couldn't make sense of everything I read but one image etched itself into my imagination. Plato asks us to imagine a group of men trapped in a cave, knowing only a world of flickering shadows cast by fire. Having experienced no other world, they assume that the shadows are the only reality. And yet the reader knows and is meant to know that there is another world beyond the cave, 
awaiting discovery. Now, as I read this passage, the hard-nosed rationalist within me smiled condescendingly. <laughs> Typical escapist superstition. What you see is what you get. And that's the end of the matter. And yet, a still small voice within me whispered words of doubt. Hmm. What if this world is only part of the story? What if this world is only a shadow land? What if, what if there is something more powerful and more wonderful beyond it? Those were the thoughts that God's Holy Spirit used through Plato, of all people, who didn't even believe in a physical resurrection, to start stirring Alistair McGrath's heart. He eventually came to the conclusion that, as Paul has taught in 1 Corinthians, there definitely is a world beyond this one. And Christ, our first fruits, has shown us that life after death is not only possible, but he is making sure that we can follow him by trusting him with our eternal future. I just get so amazed at what God uses to get through to people's hearts. And I'm grateful that he does. I'm grateful that he's so amazingly omniscient and so powerful that he can know a person's heart and use the exact thing they need to start stirring that heart in a way that would Awaken, awaken their spirit to his spirit. So what's your story? Have you got a grip on that truth that Paul's been talking about? Have you got a grip on the theology that he's uh, teaching us that's based on the real most important message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Have you got a grip on the fact that there will be a resurrection? Some will be resurrected to a life forever in the presence of God. Others to the most miserable life ever because it will be constant misery apart from God and that there are only those two choices. Have you got a grip on that? That's what Paul wants us to know. And he's willing to risk his own life and to go from peril to peril to share this truth because he believed it with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Why did he believe it? Because it was real, because there was eyewitness evidence. And that's what I want you to have a grip on as well. So what's your story? Do you want Christ? If you don't have him already, he's available and he's calling to you. His spirit would love to be able to capture your spirit and to envelop you with his love and grace and mercy and show you the way so that we can look forward to that eternal life together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this gospel, which Paul has so clearly shared with us, and now which includes life with a promise of resurrection, will be embraced by as many people as possible. Oh, it would be so great to have a wonderful resurrection experience and a reunion for all of us because we care about each other. We care about those loved ones and our friends, and I want them to know you as I know you so that we can have that reunion and live in your presence together in the community of faith where people care about each other and there's true justice and there's not a selfish motive for what we would do for one another. And that's what you have in store for everybody who would embrace Christ. It's what we long for in this life, but we're not going to see it just yet because sin is still present. But we know we have that to look forward to if we're in Christ. And I pray that if there's somebody in this, in this hearing, in this virtual room today, 
who can respond to you. I pray that they'll respond with openness, that they'll open their heart and their mind to you, and that they'll say, yes, I want Jesus Christ. Thank you for forgiving everybody who does that. For everybody who calls upon your name will be saved, and that you'll show us the way toward that salvation that lasts for eternity. And I thank you in Jesus' name. <laughs>